Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Murens. On today's episode, Deanna Okanachoff and I are joined again by Sarah Runyon, a criminal defense lawyer who practices on Vancouver Island. Sarah last joined us on Borderlines podcast episode 38, where we discussed the criminal offense of breach of bail in Canada. On today's episode, Sarah provides an overview of the law of sexual assault in Canada. The immigration relevance is that a foreign national or permanent resident can be inadmissible to Canada if they have been convicted of or have committed an offense abroad that equates to sexual assault in Canada. It's accordingly important to understand what constitutes sexual assault in Canada. What is the actus reus or the action? What is the mens rea or the mental state that someone must have to have committed sexual assault? I really enjoyed this episode because I got to have answered all sorts of questions that I had and that listeners emailed me or asked on Twitter about sexual assault law in Canada. Some of the topics we discussed today are what is sexual assault, what is the law on sexual assault in Canada, how does consent work, what role can intoxication play, both in terms of uh, if the accused was drunk at the time of the act as well as if the victim or complainant was intoxicated. Can you consent when you're, uh, can you consent to sex or to sexual contact when you are intoxicated? Can sexual assault be verbal? How does the test of beyond a reasonable doubt work in the sexual assault context? Uh, Is it different as a result of the Me Too movement? Can revenge porn, is that sexual assault? What about can sexual assault be verbal? We ask all sorts of questions today uh, that Sarah answered. If you want to get a hold of Sarah Runyon, she can be reached at info at marianandcompany.ca, M-A-R-I-O-N-A-N-D-C-O-M-P-A-N-Y.ca. I can be reached on Twitter at Smearens, S-M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S. You can also find me at larley.com. And Deanna can be reached by email at D-E-A-N-N-A at M-C-C-R-E-A-L-A-W dot C-A. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have a broad definition of sexual assault, which includes all unwanted um, sexual activity from unwanted um, sexual grabbing, kissing, fondling, extending the sexual intercourse. Uh, As a basic principle, sexual activity is only legal if both parties consent. Um, And consent is defined in the criminal code. And it's this sort of voluntary agreement to engage in the sexual activity in question. And our law uh, focuses on what the person was actually thinking and what the person was actually feeling at the time of the sexual activity. Um, when you so, say the person, is that the accused or the victim? That's like both. both. And, okay. and, and it depends on the context. Sexual touching um, of any kind is only lawful if, if the person affirmatively and that's, that's important now with Bill C-51 affirmatively communicates their consent. And, and that can be through words, it can be through conduct. Um, but what we've learned through the sort of like growing body of jurisprudence now is that 
silence or um, passivity does not equal consent. Um, I, I can give you some specific instances where, you know, the criminal code says there is no consent. <laughs> um, yeah, what, uh, I think what that would those? be helpful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I've made a couple of bullet points here. So if someone says or does something to show that they're not agreeing to continue what was ultimately consensual activity at the outset, mm -hmm. if they are incapable of consenting to the activity because they are unconscious, meaning they're grossly intoxicated in most instances, if it's if the activity is the result of um, the accused, the perpetrator abusing a position of trust or power mm -hmm. or authority, or uh, if someone consents on somebody else's behalf. So th those are like some examples where the code says, no, this is, this is not true, genuine consent. Does the exercise of authority one include like employer employee? Like yes. is that just deemed all sex between an employer and employee is deemed to be non-consensual or is it more complicated than that? Yeah. So it specifies it's the abuse of that. The abuse. Okay. Position of trust or power. So it's not necessarily the, the relationship generally, but are you abusing your position of power in order to engage to whatever extent you're engaging? Yeah. Can you remind me? Because I, I, I like I feel like my historical recollection of this is a bit fuzzy. But um, was sexual assault always laid out as being something separate and distinct from assault generally in the criminal code? I, I mean, not always. Like I'm not asking you, like you know, back in the 1920s. I'm asking you, like, is that a recent um, evolution, or has that been there um, for some time? Oh, I think that's been there for quite some time. I probably okay. couldn't pinpoint for you exactly when, but for certainly for decades, yes. Okay. But mm -hmm. there's no specific offense for rape that's distinct from sexual assault. Like this is just like, there's one offense that encompasses all different degrees and the, the variation between one activity and the other is really just a matter of sentencing. Is that correct? Yeah, so I, I saw this um, question pop up before um, we recorded and there are degrees of, of sexual assault. So we have, we don't have anything similar to what the United States has, but we do have, for example, sexual assault, um, causing bodily harm. We have aggravated sexual assault. Right. Um, and then we have sexual assault simpliciter. Um, it's very rare that I shouldn't say it's very rare. It's, it's most common that the crown proceeds on the sexual assault simpliciter, whether it be summarily or by indictment. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so this was a question that um, a friend asked, which is, we don't have these varying levels of sexual mm -hmm. assault. Mm -hmm. So what about that scenario? Like if someone is at a nightclub and they start dancing with a girl oh, yeah. without her consent and yeah. like, you know, they don't grab her, like they maybe just start dancing with her and hold her waist or grab her shoulders or something and a quick push, like a no, is that, would that fit the definition of sexual assault? Yeah, so that's actually, I, I, that's interesting. And I think it would come down to the facts of the particular case, but certainly like a starting point for, for any trier factor are going to be those essential elements of sexual assault. So what is it that the Crown has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt? And when we're dealing with Section 271, there are, you know, 
four things primarily that the touching there was touching number one that the touching was intentional and that the touching took place in circumstances of a sexual nature and that the complainant did not consent to the sexual activity in question and the accused knew that the complainant did not consent to the sexual activity in question and so like in a dancing scenario I would assume that like the the issue for the trier fact to grapple with is was it uh, touching of a sexual nature yeah. um and that's going to be totally context dependent right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but certainly like you know the example you gave like or have you seen example. someone charged like in your practice with something like that or is that really just like in theory it could happen but you don't see charges like that I haven't had a case that, you know, revolves around dancing at a nightclub, but I, I do remember very um, vividly when I first started practicing, the accused was intoxicated and he <laughs> licked the ear of one of the girls that he was sitting around, a, it was a bonfire or maybe or something like that. And, um, you know, he ultimately at sentencing, he was given a, a discharge, but the the judge did find that that would that lick to the ear was of a sexual nature and a conviction followed mm. so there are some sort of anomalous fact situations for sure i haven't dealt with the nightclub scenario yet but i'm i'm certain that there are lots of cases about nightclub um you know scenarios mm -hmm. Um, so I think that we kind of foreshadowed this, that I, I imagine that the most complex component of the jurisprudence is around the consent issue, or maybe I'm wrong, or is it some of it around whether or not the nature of the contact is, is sexual? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think in, in most cases, did the complainant consent or did the accused have an honest but mistaken belief in her consent? Right. Those are, I would say, are the, are the twin issues that we most often have to confront. Because okay. if it's the case that they can't show that it was a sexual intent, it would still be assault? Yes. Yeah. So one of the essential elements always in any um, Section 271 prosecution. Right. Did it take place in circumstances of a sexual nature? Right. Right. And so I guess... Um... I guess uh, you're right, Steve, I kind of missed over the like making out the case from the perspective of like, was there the, was there the physical activity in terms of like, was there the actus reus and then was there the mens rea? So that becomes even before you get to the issue of the, of the defense. So um, perhaps we should kind of slow it down around that and around the intent um, um, perhaps like sort of walk us through kind of what goes into figuring out what was the intent of that contact. Mm -hmm. So what would a trier of fact consider when trying to determine the intent of the accused? Mm -hmm. And again, that's so fact, fact specific. Mm -hmm. I mean, often they'll look at things like uh, what part of the body was touched what were you know the the social circumstances at the time um you know what was the and this is this this becomes uh, tricky with bill c51 but what was the uh, nature of the existing relationship 
um, those are three sort of examples of what the you know trier fact would consider. Um, but if I had because, to give me an example, I could work. I, I think I'd be able yeah. to mold it better. I guess the part that I'm sort of struggling with is you have to establish, I would imagine, in making the case that it was unwanted touch. Yes. And so I guess it's sort of like, um, uh, so it's almost like you sort of have to go to the intent, not only of the accused, but it's almost like the consent is sort of built into making out the factual elements of the case as well. Like it operates as a defense, but it also, like you sort of have to get almost to the consent element just in kind of laying out whether or not the physical and the motivational elements of the offense were there in the first place. So it's, it's a kind of an unusual one in that respect. Yes. And that's what makes it so complicated. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you, you have those, those four criteria that we talked about before that are always present. They sound so simple, but you know, it, it becomes very complicated when you start to analyze, um, as I say, like the nature of that relationship, the history of the relationship, what were the, you know, environmental factors at the you know relevant time? Mm-hmm. Are we dealing with, you know, positions of trust or abuse of authority? Um, so yes, it, it becomes very complicated. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe um, like for me, the I'm always sort of um, most interested in knowing, um, I mean, this is perhaps less pertinent to the equivalency question, but just in terms of um, how well equipped you find the courts are at establishing this intent component and whether or not consent was present and whether or not, uh, you know, um, Anyways, uh, I think you understand the the idea. Yeah. yeah. So I think the I think the impetus for that for the new bill um, was the fact that you know it was sort of shown through <laughs> our, our jurisprudence that myths and stereotypes remain um, pervasive and sure. persistent in sexual offense trials, and and the the intent of those new provisions was to sort of remove. Um, inferences and reasoning that's likely to distort the sort of truth seeking function of the trial. And mm-hmm. they were, so these new provisions are, are to provide significant protection for sexual assault complainants from, um, you know, irrelevant or unnecessary attacks on their, on their privacy or on their dignity. Um, and usually that sort of manifests in a, in a form of thinking uh, because they had consented in the past, they're more likely to have consented this time. Um, you know, we had a very high profile case just a couple of years ago where the trial judge, you know, insinuated that, um, the complainant was engaging in risky behavior and was sort of provoking, um, a sexual assault. And uh, there are these archaic views that, that continue, and most of the time subconsciously, to sort of infiltrate the reasoning process. And so, you know, that's why we have these, you know, when I talk about Bill uh, C-51, these are provisions that say, well, you can't rely on, um, you know, records, what this complainant has said in the past, what she's done in the past. And, and generally speaking, there has to be a specific reason why you, defense counsel, want to dive into, you um, the specific nature of this relationship, 
who this person is on a more fundamental level, because really what's at, what's at issue here is what happened this time, not who this person is, not, you know, propensity reasoning, but, you know, what happened within that, you know, seven to 14 minute interval. Right. I know sometimes in the defense bar, like in the context of mandatory minimums, there's a resistance towards limiting judicial discretion. Is there the same resistance or hesitancy around limiting what judges can admit as evidence in sexual assault cases? This is so controversial. Um, And it is, uh, I don't, I think someone is being disingenuous disingenuous if they suggest that they have an answer to to this problem of, you know, we want to protect um, complainants. We don't want this process to become, um, you know, a traumatic event in and of itself, but we also Mm -hmm. want to ensure due process that we want to ensure that this individual has the right to full answer and defense and sort of trying to manage those two priorities Mm -hmm. is, is difficult. And for that reason, it's controversial, Um, you know, with the, um, with the introduction of Bill C-51, we, we have a complainants council now. So they are represented by uh, an advocate that causes a host of problems. Does it? Okay. Yes. Um, In terms of. Well, any criminal trial is not supposed to boil down to a credibility contest. Right. And that's why we have that sort of instructive reasoning process in the, in the case of R and WD, which is, you know, you're not, you're, your job is not to decide who you believe. Your job is to determine whether you have, after you know, reviewing all of the evidence, a reasonable doubt about what occurred at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, a fair amount of you know, academics and, and jurists who have sort of discussed the fact that there is at least the risk that this turns into, you know, by having complainants counsel, that this turns into the sort of credibility contest that we want to guard against. Um, so that, I mean, I, we could talk, this could be a whole other topic in and of itself, right. but I think that's sort of the, the, the bare bones of, of the controversy. Well, we've yeah. had, we've had multiple podcasts on the subject of credibility in terms of like, what exactly is a credibility determination. Um, and we've talked about yeah. it it's mostly in the context of a refugee determination, but then it's not credibility determination in a adversarial setting. It's not, a, you know, a contest of credibilities, you know, yeah. still it's extremely complicated, um, yeah. you know, and so, um, so I, I, I'm not surprised here, but, you know, there's no, I mean, this was kind of the, the takeaway from, I think, some of our, 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 our podcasts on the subject of credibility is that there's no, um, there are no, you can't pull out some salient factors, like a checklist of things that are like, these are the factors that establish that this is credible testimony. And these are the factors exactly. that show, like there's no, yeah. I mean, there's no polygraph exactly. um, yeah. for, for credibility. So when that becomes the central element of a trial, then um, we're kind of doomed to this subjective, um, what the trier of fact believes. And that is nothing more than the beliefs of that trier of fact, no matter how, um, whether we, we agree or we don't agree, but um, that's really all that you can talk about, right? Yes. 
Um, and especially the, uh, when you well, add to it the whole issue of trauma, because again, I think that the, I mean, this for me is always the big issue is that the effect of trauma often is that it produces the exact opposite response. I mean, you just look at Stockholm syndrome, just for example, totally. and like the, the reaction is exactly the opposite of what the emotional, um, you know, like you might freeze in the face of a trauma. That doesn't mean that you wish to stay for more. It just is like, that yes. is the emotional reaction. Yes. So if you're going to look at that as a credibility thing, then, yes. you know, um, exactly. <laughs> anyways, I cut you off, Steve. <laughs> Oh, it's just um, before we get back to some more of the specific elements on the philosophical underpinnings of the system right now, I've just pulled up an email from a past Borderlines podcast guest, and I won't name who it is because I don't remember if we talked about this in the episode uh, that she was in, but we talked about how in criminal law, there's that maxim or principle that it's better to let five guilty people go free than one innocent mm. person go to jail and she wrote that this may get her in trouble with her criminal defense friends but i think that many of the conversations post me too about barriers to conviction in sex assault cases are really at heart about whether we ought to be rejigging that normative preference of better that five guilty people go free than one innocent for and back to her quote for throwing nine women under the bus to avoid convicting one innocent man. And do you think there's a sense that in sexual assault cases, at least, that we are, or the legal system is moving away from the principle that it's better that five guilty people go f free than one innocent person be convicted? I, I, I wouldn't say that necessarily but what i would say is that we're beginning to to recognize that the criminal justice process whether there's an acquittal or a conviction is not you know the appropriate means to sort of you know achieve the, the sense of justice that that mm. the woman who or man who authored that email suggests that we're sort of lacking you know even if all you have to do is sit through you know one sexual assault trial you know, watch that complainant have to testify, um, you know, hear the witnesses discuss, you know, what she went through, uh, you know, post-assault. And even if a conviction is entered, what's the result? Yeah. I mean, she's- Who wins or here? He is often, yeah. Yeah. You know, he or she is often re-traumatized. Um, and to, to what end? Uh, so I think we're, we're, we're beginning to sort of reckon with this concept of, of you know, criminal justice <laughs> and what that means to um, the complainant or you know the, the victim, um, and how how do we best achieve that sense of justice? Because I, I don't think that anyone who has been through um, this process you know leaves it, or very few leave it feeling like uh, that was a worthwhile endeavor that that you know restored something that they were lacking as a result of you know the offense. Yeah. Is it safe I to say think... that often, even if there's a conviction, the victim of the assault is re-victimized during the process? 
Oh, absolutely. And and the family is, you know, like the, the friends are, that the social circle is. I mean, everyone carries a sense of, an immense sense of uh, guilt and responsibility, and they have to relive that. And they don't just have to relive that on the day in question, but I mean, the prosecution preps their witnesses. They have to review their statements. Oftentimes they have to watch the statement that they gave after, um, you know, the assault. And so sometimes the work that people have done to sort of, you know, heal and whatever, you know, that means to them, um, it's undone by the time they take the stand. Yeah. And it, this, all, this process also takes years, right? I mean, by the time sentencing is over, it could, it could be in the system for four years. Yeah. I mean, I would just say that like working with like such a large uh, component of clients that are sort of like, you know, that have faced domestic violence, I would say, um, I would say like close to 90% of them are telling me things they've never told another human. Mm -hmm. And they'll specifically say like, can you promise me that this material will never end up in the hands of someone else? Totally. You know, that that nature for this like horrible activity to never have to be communicated to another person is just like, um, and so, you know, and these are sometimes cases where like, there's no question, like, you know, it was admitted, you know, by the the complainant that these things occurred, but like no interest in putting themselves forward for the criminal process Mm -hmm. just because of how like they can't utter it. Um, unless, you know, I can assure them there's nobody else in the office. (laughs) There's like, yeah, I mean, these are things that just, um, so the idea of having to go through that kind of a hearings process, um, you know, just absolutely punishing. The exposure, right? It's the exposure is real. I mean, and you have public courtrooms, anyone can come in and out. You're talking to, you know, usually the, some long BC anyway, you know, older white man in most cases who's presiding over your criminal trial, lawyers you haven't met before, just kind of spilling intimate details. And that's, yeah, that's not attractive to most people. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think that when I, I mean, I sort of went into a a bunch of this because I was looking at a case involving equivalency. And I remember sort of like combing through some of the, from some of the legislation in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And I found it was so highly codified um, Mm -hmm. um, as compared to, um, as compared to what we have in Canada. Like, um, and this was sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm getting back now to the question of consent more, but like who is capable of consenting to sexual activity? And there are very specific rules that like, yeah. if there's this much of an age gap, there's no consent. And this was sort of like, I presume to make it so that there's no need to go through a trial that like, if you just haven't hit that age and then the other person has, then there's like, there just is an assault, you know? And that, and they also like, they're very specific. They like distinguish between sexual assault and rape. Like there's just, it's, it's a much more codified. And I just kind of wonder from your perspective, um, whether or not that kind of like highly codified thing as a way of getting this out of the criminal justice system in a conventional sense, does that strike you as being a good solution? Or is it just more that we have to look to kind of more restorative justice kind of um, vehicles? I'm just, I mean, I know that you're speaking from the perspective of of defense. So, you know, I'm just, I'm curious um, what your reaction is to other jurisdictions going that way. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll say at the outset that, that we also have exceptions for sexual relationships for people who are close in age. Um, mm-hmm. So we also have, yeah, 
anyway, I don't know if you want me to get into that specifically, but we, we also do have these sort of um, age cutoffs. Um, but I, th I think, you know, I think we are, re as I, it relates back to what I said previously, sort of re-examining, you know, what end we're ultimately, you know, striving to achieve, um, mm. whether that be in the context of sexual assault or otherwise. Um, I don't know that I can answer that question any differently than I've, you know, answered the previous question, which is, you know, when, when we see complainants and, you know, accuse people, when we see them leave the criminal justice system, when they're absorbed in the criminal justice system, and I will emphasize whether it's a, a complainant mm. or an accused, um, you know, uh, common sense and experience dictates that they don't leave that courtroom in any better a position. And I don't know that there's any societal, I don't, I think we're starting to question more rigorously whether there's any societal benefit in this concept of denunciation and deterrence at all costs. How right. effective is that? How productive is that? Should we really right. be focusing on these more sort of insidious systemic root causes? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's really, that's important. Going back uh, to some of the equivalency questions, can sexual assault be verbal? So we'll go back to the um, essential elements of sexual assault and it's the touching. So the it's, touching is an essential element of sexual assault. Um, criminal harassment is an offense in and of itself. Um, and there are, you know, versions of um, uh, verbal conflict that may be caught by the sexual harassment provision or sorry, the criminal harassment provision. Mm. So does that mean like, so that was then the question of what is the difference between sexual assault and sexual harassment? Mm -hmm. um, assault would involve touching, sexual harassment could or might not, or is there over like a Venn diagram, I guess, where? Yeah, I mean, sexual harassment, that would be up to the Crown to charge, you know, either or if touching took place, but um, sexual assault, physical contact needs to occur. Um, we don't actually have an offense of sexual harassment, but we have criminal harassment. Um, and for criminal harassment, it, you know, it can be things like constantly showing up in front of somebody's home or, uh, you know, catcalling or, um, online. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Online harassment. Yeah. So you said constantly showing up at someone's home and catcalling. I'm just wondering, is there a threshold of multiple occurrences yeah. that has to occur for it to be criminal harassment. Yeah. One-off statement, a one-off cat call wouldn't be criminal harassment. That's right. Yeah. There has the repetition mm -hmm. is a, is an essential feature. Yeah. There has to be a pattern. Criminal harassment equates to uh, it's got to like, it would be under serious crim in the immigration context. Cause I think it's a max penalty of at least 10 years or more or a max penalty of 10 years or more i wouldn't um, be able to tell you off the top of my head i think well i had a file where it was one of those cases where someone not realizing the immigration context pled from it was a permanent resident who pled from assault to criminal harassment not realizing that that would lead to deportation uh, proceedings wow yeah 
But it's interesting, though, what you say about um, there's no specific component. There's no specific, I mean, the way that there's um, assault and sexual assault, there's no such thing as harassment and sexual harassment. So all of those sort of like new um, generation of um, harassments that are like posting naked pictures of someone um, on Facebook, which is like, you know, um, especially that would just be harassment. Well, and that's a specific, uh, that was the next question that someone asked, is revenge porn sexual assault or somewhere else under the criminal code? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's somewhere else. So that that specific example is somewhere else under the criminal code. So okay. if you're publishing um, intimate images without consent, that's actually now codified as an offense under section 162 of the criminal code. Okay. So we are evolving. So we're noticing like okay. in the age of social media and technology, oh, wait a minute, are, you know, these offenses, we, we can't capture at all. Right. And that there is, oh, sorry. We're getting some uh, um, some remote living uh, Wi-Fi issues. <laughs> Breaking up a little is it, bit. Is it me or is it? It's you. Yeah. Is it? Okay. Can you go to me now? Yeah, you're yeah, okay. You. Just okay. Uh, we lost you oh. for a couple seconds. Yeah. Good. Okay. Do you want me to go back and say? No, I think we got it. It just you you hung okay. up for a second or two. Yeah. So, so that's good though. So that's a fairly recent evolution. Then what you're saying is the addition of these specific um, provisions. Well, that's good because um, to handle that as just regular harassment seems to me like that wouldn't capture the very specific (laughs) um, elements of that, of the nature of those types of postings. Well, especially if there's a repeat element um, to the criminal harassment threshold. Yes, exactly. Cause one can be pretty, pretty darn damaging. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's repetition is not an essential element for section 162. If you, you know, knowingly, uh, publish, distribute, transmit, sell, make available, advertise uh, an intimate image of somebody else knowing, um, that the person depicted in the image doesn't consent, that's enough to be captured under section 162. Okay, it's called voyeurism. I hadn't seen that before. That's um, that's the name of the offense, voyeurism. Yeah, well, yeah, that's what they call the section, section one sixty two of the code. Yeah, and then one one sixty two point one is yeah. actually yeah the publication of an intimate image without consent. I see. Okay, yeah. okay, that's very helpful. Um, and so, and I think that this was actually one of the questions that Steve put forward too, which is about um, statute of limitations. So just. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I'm really interested in how how this works, and is there um, is there like a fulsome understanding of delay in making a complaint of sexual assault? Um, you know, given the given the shame factors that tend to to motivate late disclosure. Yeah, this is actually one of the questions I can answer sort of definitively. <laughs> so, <Okay. laughs> um, if, yeah, yeah. So, if if the crown you know proceeds by indictment, mm-hmm. there is no limitation period attached. So, um, you know, historic sexual assaults can, will proceed by indictment, um, and there certainly is a recognition that it takes you know years or sometimes decades for complainants to come forward. So, we do have a mechanism available to recognize that. And is that specific to that offense? Um, that 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 is like no. Okay. No. So anytime the crown proceeds by indictment, there is no limitation period attached. I see. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Now let's get into the big one, which is drunk intoxication, which I realize 
actually breaks into two people who could be drunk, the accused mm. and the complainant. So from what I understand, right. and I'll just read section 33.1 of the code, criminal code, says that it is not a defense, it is not a defense to an offense like sexual assault that, quote, the accused by reason of self-induced intoxication lack the general intent or the voluntariness required to commit the offense where the accused departed markedly from the standard of care as described in subsection two, which says for the purposes of this section, a person departs markedly from the standard of reasonable care generally recognized in Canadian society and is thereby criminally at fault where the person while in a state of self-induced intoxication that renders the person unaware of or incapable of consciously controlling their behavior voluntarily or involuntarily interferes or threatens to interfere with the bodily integrity of another person. Can you explain what that means in English? Like that, what, what did that, what did I just read? Yeah. Okay. So one of the questions I think it, that was posed, and I think you may have reiterated this, um, is being drunk a defense. So in the overwhelming yeah. majority of cases, the answer is no. However, uh, a ruling by the Ontario Court of Appeal back in June of 2020 established that if an accused person can show that they were in a state of extreme intoxication, which is akin to something called automatism, right. they have a defense for violent crimes. And that can include sexual assault um, all the way up to murder. That issue is now before the Supreme Court of Canada and leave was granted in May of this year. Is that okay. a sexual assault case? So if you can establish that you were, no, it's, it's not in the context of sexual um, assault, but um, a lot of the interveners are uh, organizations mm. like leaf because it right. has direct implications for uh, sexual assault. So, okay. uh, it, so the simplest way to answer the question is, is drunkenness a defense? No. If you can establish, Zoom is telling me my internet connection is unstable. So let me know. Nope, if I, I hear you fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you can establish, and it, this is so rare um, that you, you know, meet the definition of extreme intoxication, meaning you don't possess an essential element being voluntariness. Right. An acquittal will follow. So involuntariness, of course, speaks to the actus reus, not the mens rea. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. it's sorry, sorry, say that again. It goes to the actus reus. Yeah, because you're wow. okay. Okay. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. That's super interesting. So and this was like this case was it turned on an interpretation of 33.1. No, the, the court of appeal. Um, yeah, at the court of appeal level. The, the one that I had just mentioned that was pronounced back in June of 2020. Yes. Yeah. So that, I, I don't know the specifics of that case. I just know the overarching principles. Okay. And I know that the, that the, um, I think it was a unanimous judgment. It's uh, just so strange because it's like, it seems to be directly contrary to what 33.1 says that it would not be a defense 
to say that they oh, think, lack the general intent or the voluntariness. Are so, you talking yeah. about CP or? No, no, no. The case that she's yeah. describing yeah. right now, the court of appeal decision said, well, but in cases of extreme drunkenness, you can yeah. say that you lacked general voluntariness, but that's exactly what 33.1 seems to prescribe. Yes. <laughs> Is so that you can't use it for that. Yeah. So to your point, there's a bit of a history here. So we, we had a case like, decades ago, back in 1994, um, Davio and Davio actually said what the Ontario Court of Appeal is now saying, which is look like if, if someone can establish extreme intox intoxication to the extent that we have a reasonable doubt about the voluntariness of their action, we have a reasonable doubt about the actus reus, whether it was satisfied, um, right. you know, an acquittal is going to follow. Society freaked, <laughs> Parliament freaked, and ushered in very quickly legislation to say, no, intoxication right. can never be a defense. And now this issue is bubbling up again, where the Ontario Court of Appeal is saying, well, wait a minute, uh, you know, we, we need to revisit this. And we don't think that it that it's correct from a, you know, normative perspective from um, a correct a, a legal perspective that someone should be convicted if they have achieved this state of automatism right. and so now it's back it'll be back at the supreme court of canada to sort of contemplate that and there will be very strong arguments from west coast i'm State. sure yeah grounded in policy implications certainly yeah yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I guess especially because the whole notion here is that while they might not have voluntariness as the end result, the whole idea is that it was self-induced intoxication. And right. so, and so, um, yes, you know, it's not like, I mean, I understand maybe it's one of those, but they did draft it to say self-induced intoxication. It's not yeah. like someone who's, um, but again, I mean, I would imagine that um, the degree um, to which, for example, you know, that crept up on them or they had a genetic condition that meant that their, um, that the impact of that drug or that alcohol was more extreme than they might have anticipated. I would think that that would have been something that could be absorbed in sentencing because, you know, um, but to go right to the question of whether or not they could have had they could have completed the actus reus of the offense seems like a pretty bold move. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a sentiment expressed by a lot of the interveners. Um, right. Yeah. And it, there was a lot of media attention focused on this decision for all of the reasons that you've just you know alluded to. It's, it's controversial and it's complex um, and it has overarching implications, not just for, you know, um, sexual assault, but for all violent offenses. Wow. Yeah. And it also is self-induced. We've actually used this in a um, equivalency analysis in response to a procedural fairness letter, Deanna, because there was a British, I can't remember if it was assault or DUI conviction, but the police clearance certificate in the details made it clear that the drink was spiked. Oh, right. So, yeah, of uh, course. Yeah. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know about you, Steve, but I mean, I've said this before and it sounds like, um, you've had better luck at this than I have, um, which is that I just don't find that um, that the CBSA, IRCC is great at the nuance involved in assessing mens rea. Um, you know, like they're kind of like, well, but he did the thing, you know? And so it's sort of like when you have to be like, yes, but the intent, the mental element, you know, yeah. they're like, blah, blah, blah. You know? <laughs> I think in this case, it was different because the police that we never had to get it. It wasn't him claiming that the drink was spiked. The police 
certificate. Yes, absolutely. But that's why I would always rather when I'm making a rehab argument, I would always rather be able to go to Actus Reis kind of thing, because Mm. I just feel like when you're trying to deal with, it's sort of like, they're like, well, that's all abstract. I can show you that like in, I have, because I mean, again, um, as we've said to you before, Sarah, like all they need is reasonable grounds to believe that the offense occurred, even without a conviction, you know, like this is the like, um, CBSA or IRCC acting as judge, jury, and executioner, right? Where they just need reasonable grounds to believe and to try and convince that person that yes, the physical elements of the offense occurred, but maybe not the mental elements. I kind of feel like you can be writing affidavits until you're blue in the face. But oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as you can imagine, you know, especially when yeah. there's no in-person interaction between the parties, you know, it's it's a really hard argument to win, I find. Yeah. So, um, so again, I mean, when you can say, look, here's the physical proof that, or here's the the statement that says this was not self-induced intoxication, then I think it's, it's much better to be able to go to it from that perspective. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about the accused being drunk now, mm-hmm. and this is the part where I think my understanding of the law may have been wrong. The victim <laughs> is drunk. I had always thought that if the victim was intoxicated, it's automatically not consensual. But in this case, and maybe the more I think about it, the more common sense it would be, because then every time yes. someone drinks, um, it would be sexual consent. assault in theory. But in this case, CP gets into whether someone had consented to, to sexual contact I guess before they got drunk well I think before if I recall correctly I I think the findings of fact whether she was incapacitated at the time the um, intercourse occurred so when she offered her consent you know the question for the court was if they found that she offered consent at any point in time did did she have the capacity or was she too intoxicated to form um the required capacity and then that's when they relied in in cp on the um evidence of uh the friend who encountered her unconscious with vomit on herself and then they looked at the temporal connection between the time when the intercourse was likely to have occurred and the time upon which uh, she encountered um the complainant and they said it was you know ultimately too close in time to have a reasonable doubt about her level of capacity at the time that intercourse took place Mm -hmm. i think what this goes to for me is that like consent is not something that you can issue and then it's like a license like it has to continue to be offered and if somebody who has given consent suddenly you know transcends into a um, into a state where they're no longer able to continue to renew that consent, it's considered that the consent no longer exists. And so it seems like that's kind of what the Supreme Court is grappling with in this decision, like trying to figure out how to di- how to um, how to assess on that timeline based on the facts they had before them, whether there was reasonable, like, well, whether, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt or the criminal standard, whether or not there could have been that degree of consent at the moment that intercourse occurred. Yes. Yes. I think that's exactly right. I mean, um, it's not like a go sign, you know, like, well, I got the go sign. So now I'm good. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, 
yeah, and that and that actually relates back to our discussion before about these sort of you know myths that surround um, complainants of sexual assault, and you know if just because someone had consented in the past doesn't necessarily mean that they consent on this particular occasion. Right, consented forty five minutes earlier doesn't mean that they're you know continuing to consent. But that's why we have this honest but mistaken belief in consent available to the defense because you know again, as a matter of common sense and experience, like when, you know, you are engaged in intimate activity, um, when is it reasonable for you to be, you know, aware of the fact that that individual is no longer consenting to that physical contact? What, what kind of signs ought to have been, um, you know, acknowledged by uh, the accused? And that's why it's these evidentiary provisions um, you know, while I certainly agree with the spirit of them, can be very challenging for the defense because it can be hard to establish an honest but mistaken belief in consent if you are um, prohibited from relying on, you know, the history of that relationship, what the intricacies right. of that intimate contact were in the past. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So talk us through that honest but mistaken belief. Like, how right. does that I, how does that work? I just have one further question about the. So is, when they, when we, when it's, uh, someone is intoxicated and they can no longer consent, is there, how do the courts determine whether someone is intoxicated? Is it just whether they drank at all? Is it, I assume they don't do a blood alcohol test. Is it on the complainant? Uh, no. Yeah. So like, how do they determine, um, well, how do they determine whether the person was intoxicated such that they couldn't consent? Yeah, usually visual cues by like, well, not, I shouldn't say usual, usually some examples will include like visual cues that the witnesses testify to. So here we have a woman who's unconscious with vomit on herself, generally people who, yeah. you know, um, are uh, what we would, you know, colloquially refer to as tipsy are not going to be unconscious with vomit on themselves. Um Oftentimes the testimony of uh, the complainant, him or herself. Mm -hmm. Um those are the two that come to mind. And it seems like in this case, for example, it was like the evidence of others who observed the conduct of the complainant um, in and around the time that that occurred um, would be um, taken, you know, those would be key facts. Like if that person would say, well, that person was clearly, um, you know, not, um, not in their right mind, not able to make good rational decisions, that would be considered um, evidence that the trier of fact would consider because um, presumably those same, um, like those same presentations would have been there to the accused. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, things like she wasn't independently mobile or she was having a difficulty articulating herself. Right, or, you know, or those, speech or whatever. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Right. Have you Sorry, come across cases where the complainant or the victim is saying that they were sober, but witnesses are saying they were drunk and that led to charges? I, I haven't. And I think there's a sort of a pragmatic for, reason for that. The, the Crown, I would expect in most cases, just wouldn't proceed. I mean, they don't, if the complainant's going to testify that, um, you know, she was consenting and she was sober, well, you'd what's the likelihood of conviction at that point? And, and really what's the societal um, yeah. interest in the prosecution at that point? 
Okay, and then Deanna, you were asking about the innocent but reasonable belief that, what was the words? Yeah, innocent but reasonable belief. Yeah, so I'll, yeah. I'll leave that one to you, yeah. Yeah, the, the honest but mistaken belief in consent. So yes, um, did, did you honestly and genuinely be, yeah, believe that the complainant was, you know, voluntarily engaging um, and there is a large volume of case law um, that exists in terms of, you know, what, what is appropriate to consider, what is inappropriate to consider. And there is no definitive answer to that question. You know, what, what you weigh and how heavily you weigh it is entirely fact specific. Um, Can you just provide a couple of examples just for yeah. the purposes of illustration, just so we yeah. understand how somebody might make that kind of defense? Yeah. I'm trying to think of a, of a recent one. Hmm. And again, this is where uh, Bill C-51 can become problematic because you have to make application to do this. But mm. someone could advance and testify to the fact that, you know, they had been in a relationship with this person, let, let's say, you know, hypothetically for a, a year. And uh, generally speaking, consensual sexual activity would be initiated, you know, in this particular way. And um, on the night in question, the sexual activity was initiated in this particular way. And um, in the past, the, the complainant would signal that, um, you know, she was consenting uh, to the activity by doing X, Y, and Z. And on the, dating, on the day in question, um, she, you know, or he provided me with all of those signals. So how was I to know you know, objectively speaking, that right. the complainant no longer consented because this is, you know, the, the kind of voluntary, um, you know, consensual sex that we had engaged in in the past. And there was nothing right. different this time. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. I totally get it. Now, I mean, this is, this is a really complicated one. I'm just really, this, this was very helpful, Sarah, because now I kind of, I, I kind of, I can see how this gets you into quite a quagmire because yeah. I, can, I can imagine how um, somebody has been participating in a sexual relationship for some period of time and all of a sudden they realize that it's not okay for them. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe it's because, you know, they, they've been doing their own work and they realize that they're only doing this, you know, they have like their quintessential daddy issues or whatever the thing may be, all of a sudden they realize that it's having, um, that, you know, that, um, it's actually traumatizing or something like that. And their reaction today, um, they come online to the fact that this is not okay with them. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so with that, in terms of an honest but mistaken belief, it seems to me that even though in the mind of the complainant, that is truly an assault at that point, and maybe all the previous ones were assaults yeah. in that experience, that doesn't mean that consent wasn't actually given. You uh, know? Well, 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, what are, what are the sort of, and, and this is why that this area of the law is, is again, like so complicated because you ultimately have to revert back on sort of societal expectations and, you know, yeah. what, what we deem to be um, permissible and impermissible. Um, it's really hard to, you know, to sort of manufacture, um, you know, a reference point outside of, <laughs> stereotype I mean it really is because that, that's all that we're exposed to um so yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you come across a case or heard of a case of like say in the arranged or forced marriage context uh, someone didn't really consent in the way that we use the term to the marriage, but did so because of societal pressure or cultural pressure and what impact that would have on whether they were then consenting to the sexual activity if they didn't consent really to the marriage in the first place? I actually haven't come across that, um, but that's very interesting. <laughs> that's, I don't that's know if it's ever happened. It just, um, as yeah. Dan, I was asking per question across my mind. Yeah, mm -hmm. interesting question. It certainly hasn't happened to me, but yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a challenge because I think these are a lot of the cases um, that that I that I see and that I deal with, where like on paper and based on the legal standard, um, consent will be given up to a point, and then all of a sudden, the the no kind of gets mobilized within uh, within the person. And sometimes it takes a super long time. And when the, the no finally gets mobilized, yeah. is it like, at what point does it become a non-consensual act? Is it, right. you know, it's not yeah. that it wasn't, it, I mean, again, just this notion of consent is very, very complicated because yeah. it could be that they're only doing it in the first place because yeah. they just haven't yet mobilized their no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, to, to that extent, you know, the, the court will contemplate as it pertains to the accused, whether they chose to to ignore things that would tell them there was a lack of consent um, or yeah. if, they, if they didn't continue to take the proper steps to check if, if there was consent like there is an expectation that you're going to do that um, so you know recklessness is a is a would be a component of the example that you gave Steve I mean are you someone that ought to have known or were you reckless or were you willfully blind yeah. about the parameters of that person's consent I think the part that gets so complicated about this is that um, there is also a general understanding that certain kind of like sexual proclivities, yes, um, that's each to their own. Yes. So they might be like to somebody who doesn't share those sexual proclivities are like, well, that is harmful, that is damaging, that's demeaning, yes. Yes. right? And so whether or not that would ever constitute recklessness, because there's some things where like, you know, when I'm taking an affidavit, to me, there's just no doubt in my mind, that is a degrading act. Yes. But if the person never says any no, there's no, like, could that ever be something that's like, well, just based on the conduct itself, it was reckless not to assume that this would be hurtful, that this would be injurious to that person, you know, but it seems to me like without any statement of objection, I don't know. I mean, this is something that I'm curious about. 
Yeah, and and there are actually um, quite a few cases where you know you're dealing with um, like bondage type sexual practices where it was consented to, um, you know, at the at the outset and had been throughout the course of the relationship. Um, and you know the the courts the trier facts views about you know whether someone could ever you know consent to bodily harm for example in, in that um in that context um the answer would be no i mean if uh, right now our law says that you cannot consent to sexual activity that involves bodily harm okay so you can't consent to, to sexual activity that's, you know, ultimately going to require um, that you have stitches or that you have bruising or, uh, okay. but, that, but that's also complicated in and of itself, right? Um, so, well, that's, that's really, um, that's really meaningful. I think that's really helpful. And I think that that's, um, that's good for people to know about both tra- practitioners and, and people. I mean, I think perhaps that doesn't stop people if that is their chosen thing. It just, it's part of the trust relationship, I suppose. And that, yeah. you know, you have to be really vigilant about knowing that that consent exists. Yeah. But, but there is no also, Isn't that um, yeah, that's right. That is, yeah. from a legal yeah. standpoint, there mm-hmm. is yeah. no consent, right? Yeah. Um, and so, but at the same time, um, to know, because I mean, so much, and this sort of goes to what you're saying, Sarah, about... Um, you know, what is true, the objective of true criminal justice is that for so many women, it's like, but I didn't say no. And doesn't that mean that I welcomed and invited that activity and that I have no right to say that I didn't consent, you know? And so the idea that there's a built in, that that the law sort of recognizes a built in no, whether something that is injurious, Um, and I don't know, I mean, you're saying that nothing that causes bodily harm, but does that include like psychological harm or it doesn't go that far? I know that that's super, super hard to establish, but something that's like degrading, demeaning, like, um, shaming, you know, where it's like, um, cause you know, so much of, um, for, for many of my clients anyways, the, the physical wounds they heal from, but the, Mm -hmm. um, the mental component, um, is what sticks. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a a good question. You know, would it extend to psychological harm? I guess in some, you know, and again, we go back and look at the essential elements of sexual assault, I suppose in certain contexts. Yes. Um, But, uh, you know, certainly I don't have any firsthand experience where a court has found um, someone guilty or has entered a, a conviction based on the fact pattern that you, that you just described there involving psychological harm yeah yeah what would be an example of psychological harm oh just some of the things that i've heard people told and you know like being berated and being um Mm. insulted and you know just called horrible things you need to read some of my affidavits steve (laughs) like that's separate from the like the abuse of authority or intercourse. yeah i mean it can be it can be a spouse it can be a you know a romantic partner for sure Mm, I see. Uh, and in that example of two people consensually, but not factually consensually, but not legally consensually mm-hmm. engaging in, say, his BDSM or something that causes harm, or even with the intoxication issue, like, are there situations where both sides 
if they're both engaging in the act upon the other, or if both sides are drunk, would both participants be charged with sexual assault? So though that's also a scenario where the crown, I mean, it would be so rare to see a case like that because the crown mm. always, or at least should be, doesn't always, but should be weighing, okay, what's the substantial likelihood of conviction? Is, mm-hmm. is there one? And what's the public's interest in this? At the right, moment? exactly. Um, and that, so I, I would expect that those kinds of cases would be very few and far between. Yeah, I think the latter one is um, is even more so like, what's the public's interest in this too? You yeah. know, I think you really hit on that. Yeah. yeah. Um, second last question that I got from uh, friends, colleagues in the internet, and it is probably a big one, which is how do you deal with beyond a reasonable doubt in a case of he said, she said, so even if you believe the reasonable victim, even if you believe the victim, would there, wouldn't there always be some reasonable doubt in he said, she said in most cases? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so- so Steve, this is a question that I actually, um, I put a little bit of thought into because I can tell you that most judges would not know how to answer that question because yeah. it's so, you know, it's so intricate, but we had a, a recent ruling from the BC Supreme Court. Uh, it's an initialized style of cause. And there's one paragraph in particular that that answers this question head on. So what I, what I thought I would do is just sort of read uh, from a portion of that one paragraph because it, it it's... It, as I say, it answers the question head on. So the, the judge writes, sexual assault cases often involve he said, she said scenarios where the complainant and the accused are the only witnesses to the alleged criminal conduct. In these kinds of cases, it is vitally important that judges do not decide that an accused is guilty merely because the judge concludes that the complainant's version of events is more likely to be true. In other words, a criminal trial is not a credibility contest in which an accused must present a more credible version. Deciding a he said, she said case merely on the basis of which version is more likely to be true would misapply, this is the key, would misapply the burden of proof on the crown to establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The correct application of the burden of proof requires the judge to acquit the accused if the evidence as a whole raises a reasonable doubt about guilt. And so the last sentence he says, in other words, it is possible that a judge might find the complainant's version of events to be more believable, but still have a reasonable doubt about what actually happened. And in doubt must go to the accused. And that's ultimately why we have that WD instruction that I alluded to um, earlier. If, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know, but I assume a lot of people who listen to this podcast are probably lawyers or involved in the legal field. And I, I think to some extent they would be familiar with that instruction. And that instruction is essentially that. Like, you know, if you if you believe the evidence of the accused, you, ha- you have to acquit him. And if the evidence of the accused raises a reasonable doubt, even if some or all of his evidence is not believed, you must acquit him. And if the evidence of the accused does not raise a reasonable doubt, it must be determined whether the guilt of the accused has been established beyond a reasonable doubt by the evidence that is accepted. So that's a whole mouthful, but that's- Yeah. (laughs) But it sounds like what it's saying is, or the takeaway is he said, she said, um, the criminal justice system still operates that better that five guilty people go free than one innocent go to jail. 
I think the the takeaway is we we don't um, mobilize around a he said she said uh, credibility mm-hmm. contest that mm-hmm. that it once you start engaging what what version of events do I believe do I believe you more or do I believe you more that's impermissible reasoning that's ultimately mm-hmm. going to result in an appeal and yeah. so the mm-hmm. takeaway is I have to look at everything and is there something in the evidence that I accept that leaves me with a reasonable doubt is there something about about the the testimony here that that I accept to be reliable and credible that that signals to me uh it would not be safe to enter a conviction mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's right this is not this is not a civil litigation matter this is strictly right. like whether or not the case has been made out on the facts and evidence totally mm-hmm. yeah. yeah although as you noted Deanna in the immigration context it would be whether it's reasonable to think an offense occurred abroad for offenses that aren't in Canada yeah um, that's crazy I know isn't it nut bar yeah that yeah. is so crazy yeah. yeah and then you have to add in the whole element of trying to equate one one jurisdiction's system for evaluating this entire complex area of law with the Canadian one and I feel like they should almost all fail on equivalency, right? Just because they're just so different, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, um, but in any event, um, you know, they, I think equivalency arguments, they're very fancy legal arguments, but whether or not ultimately um, admissibility arguments win or lose on the basis of a fancy equivalency argument, I think, um, I, I actually think that it's a very small number, even though I think they are, markedly different in this particular area. I don't know if you agree with that, Steve, but like, no, well, I, I agree that... just because the Canadian offense compared to a lot of foreign offenses that say distinguish between, I don't know, rape and some other level of touching because Canada has lumped it all under exactly. sexual assault. The Canadian offense is much broader. It's broader. It's not the other way offenses. around. Yeah, exactly. I agree with that. But I just think in general, like, I think the whole thing about equivalency arguments in just generally, this is my throwaway comment for the day on, uh, on a criminal inadmissibility. I think like immigration lawyers love to like, you know, spend a lot of time on fancy equivalency arguments and, you know, get really like dressed up over those. But um, I'm not sure how many cases actually turn on oh yes I agree that there's a distinction between the you know I think more often than not they're pretty crude assessments being made um anyways I mean that's that's a subject for a different conversation I think it has to be obvious and something that can be clearly explained in like five sentences or less yeah exactly lost as legal mungbo jumbo exactly like Um, you know like laws that exist in one place that don't exist in Canada, period, you know? Yeah, you might win that one. But when it's just these nuances, I think that, um, especially when the Canadian one, as, as Steve said, is broader than the foreign one then it, and, and more yeah. amorphous, I think um, it might be a lost cause. As defense counsel, would you rather try a jury before or for sexual assault charge? Would you rather have the trial by jury or judge? So full disclosure, <laughs> I... Um, I, I have not and will not uh, likely ever run a jury trial. I, um, I, I tend to work in, um, I need to be careful here, but I tend to work in, in more sort of um, remote sections of the province. And there are um, 
<laughs> reasons why <laughs> there are there are variables that lead me to conclude uh, I I will do a better job for my client if I uh, am in a judge alone trial and so uh, I have not yet encountered a, a situation where I believe it would be advantageous for my for my client <laughs> to receive a, a trial by judge and jury and generally speaking um, you know I, I will say a lot a lot of counsel a lot of defense counsel will um, uh, select a judge and jury for sexual assault cases and they will do so on the basis that uh, you know, e even though we're, we're supposed to have jury instructions that will guard against the sort of stereotypical propensity reasoning, um, that is ultimately how the, the, the jury will, studies have revealed anyway, and acad academic journals have discussed this at length, uh, how they will decide cases. And that can, to some extent, be advantageous for the defense. So it depends on what your tactics are, what your stylistic preferences mm -hmm. are. But anyway, that's, that's my view of things. <laughs> Those are very carefully chosen words. I, yeah. I, <laughs> well done. <laughs> You're like tiptoeing through a minefield. Yeah. yeah. Um, that makes a lot of sense. What's, uh, I want to link to that case in the um, show notes and to send it the to my one friend going who asked to the that Supreme question. Court? No, that, well, yeah. that too, but the, um, the one yeah, where really the judge commented or the BC Court of Appeal commented on he said, she said. Yeah, for um, sure. And we're done here. Because yeah, I think absolutely. it's interesting because I think my friend and probably many people thought that the law worked the opposite way, uh, which was sort of what I was like when I read some of the other sections and you were talking about, you know, evidentiary rules about corroboration or past conduct that it seemed to suggest that in he said, she said it would lean towards supporting or not supporting, but I guess it's not even believing the accused, but finding or believing the complainant, but finding guilt. So it's interesting to hear that the BC Court of Appeals ruled the other way. Well, I don't think it says that, though. I think it just says that that's not the that's not the standard. It's not about yeah. the credibility findings at all. It's just overall. Right. Was the test met? You know, it's just like these are just more factors that get taken right. into like you know, do I feel satisfied based on all of this? It's like just all grist for the mill after hearing all this information, do I believe? But again, it's not about, I, I just, I, again, balancing. I find that it's really refreshing because we are part of a system that is so precariously teetering on this credibility assessment. And to, in my view, the absolute detriment of, um, of determinations to some, sometimes, you know, and this was like, um, this was the focus of our, of our podcast with, um, Sean Rehag about like, who is it that you can sit in front of a refugee tribunal and say, you know, um, I know who is telling the truth and here are the particular markers that I have looked for to say, this is a truth teller versus this is something, especially when you add that layer um, mm -hmm. That every person before you has, um, if they're a genuine climate, has suffered complex trauma. Um, you know that, uh, um, you know, and he cited the fact that that one decision maker, after having doing the, done this forensic audit of refugee decisions, which are not publicly reported for unless they're 
um, they're judicially reviewed. Um, every single decision, I simply do not believe was a phrase in the, in the determination, you know, and it's like, so I think just the notion that credibility determinations are fundamentally flawed and that overall that the focus needs to be on something quite different than that, that these are just pieces of it and understanding that like human narrative and human reality is, is always um, complicated. Yeah. yeah, well said. Yeah. Well, in the yeah. immigration system outside of the refu initial refugee hearing context, it's all paper based submissions that are then assessed for credibility with possible procedural fairness letter, but it's still all paper based <laughs> oh, credibility uh, determinations. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that was really fascinating, Sarah. Mm -hmm. I, honestly, I, I learned a lot um, in a short period of time. Yeah. Very elevating. Yeah. No, I think our audience will really like it. Yeah. I'm going to share with everybody that when Sarah and I got this topic from Steve, we were like, huh, what does it have to do? But <laughs> you brought it home, Steve. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. That was good. That was very good. Of course. Anytime.